you can't really get any more personal than this issue. It's not something that a lot of people feel comfortable enough to talk about with friends and family. And then if there isn't much information online, and then if you do happen to see a healthcare professional that doesn't know a lot about it, you're sort of out of options. You know, women are used to being poked and prodded and having pain, and it's kind of almost accepted as normal, but really sex shouldn't be painful. And if it is, there's a problem there. Hello and welcome to A Slice in Time with me, Linda, host of Witlands, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay up to date by following me at Witlands on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find comprehensive show notes and more content on my website, lindadaz.com. Please also know that this is a podcast for education and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as individual medical advice. And a content warning, sexual assault is briefly mentioned in this episode. In today's episode, I speak to Natalie, a volunteer from the Vaginismus Network. She was able to share lots of valuable information from her own and other people's experiences of vaginismus. We speak about what the condition is and how it can manifest. We also discuss existing research on vaginismus and painful vaginal penetration and the lack thereof. Natalie also shares her own and other stories and experiences and we chat about how healthcare can be improved in this department. I really do think that you will enjoy this episode and learn something new, so let's get straight into it. Thank you so much, Natalie, for agreeing to come onto the show. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Vaginismus Network is, what you sort of do as part of it and what your mission is? Yeah, so um, I'm a volunteer at the Vaginismus Network and what we do is we are essentially a support group and we um, speak to people that have vaginismus, we connect them with others, so we match people up, so everybody's got somebody to chat to and we kind of raise awareness of what it is and give people good messages about it and share information we do know. So we have a website which has got a blog with testimonials and information we hear, you know, a bit of them um, from, from the doctors, um, and we have a so we have social, so that's where we share a lot of day to day stuff, and then also we have kind of like an email system as well, so that's where people can write into us and join, um, and then we match them up and we have a bit of a chat with people. That's great. And so, what do you typically tell someone that vaginismus is if someone thinks that oh maybe I have it or if someone's come across it for the first time what is the way that you know you would usually explain it I usually explain it so it's involuntary muscle contractions which make sex difficult or impossible that's how I explain it to people and I guess I stress to people that kind of don't understand that it isn't just you kind of having a bit of a moment getting a bit stressed or a bit nervous being a bit silly like it is something that's it's a deep reflex which is that go yeah it goes deeper than just sort of being a little bit nervous on a surface level mm. so it is really like a reflex like getting poked in the eye that's how I kind of tell people you know sometimes people write in and they say you know well, my boyfriend he's not very understanding or my friends don't really get it and I'm just saying you know just explain it to them it's like getting poked in the eye they blink wouldn't they so it's it's kind of on that level of um kind of muscle memory and a reflex mm, absolutely yeah, so I was doing some reading in terms of this and what causes it. And because there's not that much research on it, which I think we'll get into as well later on, mm. we don't quite know. 
um, and it's often described as spasms, but that's maybe not completely accurate as well. There was a paper that I'll link in the show notes by someone called Binnick who was going through um, like a lot of the different causes and def- like how to define it, which might be a bit more like in terms of the medical aspect, but it might be useful for sufferers to know as well. But at its core, it's involuntary, like you said. So it's when someone is unable to have vaginal penetration when they're wanting to do that. And uh, it used to be a quote-unquote diagnosis in its own right, separate from dyspareunia, which is painful sex. Um, but now in the latest edition of the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic yes, manual, heard this. Mm, it's now grouped in a category called genitopelvic pain slash penetration disorder, which sounds quite clinical, but taking it like a bit more... I suppose taking away a bit more from or just describing a bit more like what it is um or like talking more about the symptom as opposed to maybe I don't know vaginismus sounds like a bit of a strange name I think it doesn't really tell you what it is well it's a horrible name isn't it it's an ugly name (laughs) yeah and there's also primary and secondary vaginismus so primary is if you've never been able to achieve penetration and secondary is if you have and then at some point you can't anymore so some causes Mm. might be um, like traumatic surgery down below or traumatic birth having Mm. some sort of pelvic infections sexual trauma so assault uh, can be one and then I also I don't know what you think about this but I found many places as well talking about how cultural ideals and shame can play a role yeah and then sometimes I mean people also don't really know there might not really be a a clear reason as well but it is quite common Uh, so painful sex in general is quite common but vaginismus in itself there there isn't that much research again like I said but it's thought to affect about one in 500 women and but even more in like specialist settings and infertility clinics and so on and just finally to say as well that it affects others than just women so it can affect you know trans men and non-binary people and not just in like heterosexual sex situations so not just like penis and vagina and also not just with sex even right so it can be with just trying to insert a finger cotton bud a tampon all that stuff as well so um I don't know I do think that like genitopelvic pain slash penetration disorder it sounds quite clinical but it does kind of explain it a bit better perhaps um but yeah those were just some of the things I wanted to bring up as well Mm, I mean, it's interesting you say you think it explains it better, maybe in terms of the acronym or whatever, but I think it's interesting it's been essentially lumped in with something else because they are Mm. two different things. And it's almost like, I don't know, for me, just on a surface level, it seemed a bit of a step backwards lumping them in together under one umbrella. Mm. Um, I guess as long as within that umbrella, they're explained properly as separate conditions because it is separate dyspareunia, it's not the same thing. No, that's true. I suppose maybe it's like kind of trying to recognize it, but then, like you say, it's also important to have if you don't identify with like some of the symptoms of, for example, dyspareunia, then I suppose it is important to still consider vaginismus as well. And ultimately, that's just more of a like a clinical clinician's tool, but you need to be listening to what people are saying as well and not focus too much about labeling it because you know ultimately that might help a bit in terms of managing it, but yeah for sure I hadn't thought about that so no thank you for bringing that up how does vaginismus typically manifest so I know that you know you've shared in a blog your own experience as well but I'm sure that as a vag network volunteer you've come across lots and lots of different stories so there must be some common symptoms or experiences that people have Mm. is there anything that people themselves or medical professionals should be looking out for specifically ask for or maybe be concerned about if someone is presenting what they're talking about 
Um, well, a lot of people talk about kind of a brick wall. So basically it being impossible, um, mm. something that's just, yeah, basically it's penetration is impossible and it feels like a wall. Um, or I'd say just, well, really, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be uncomfortable. You know, if it is, there's a reason for that. Um, and I think that's where a bit of the issue lies is that I think for a long time we've sort of, you know, women are used to being poked and prodded and having pain and it's kind of almost accepted as normal, but really sex shouldn't be painful. And if it is, there's a problem there. It's a tricky one because it is, you know, psychosomatic. So I think sometimes people don't know what to do because, you know, does it cross over into psychiatry? Like whose problem is it? Mm. Um, and it's one of those things where it, it, it is a tricky one to diagnose because I kind of got checked out and I was told, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. It's kind of, you know, it's it's essentially, yes, technically it is in somebody's head because it is psychosomatic, but it's not simple as that. So I think I wouldn't send somebody away because sort of anatomically they're fine. Mm. If you're experiencing pain at entry point, I would say, um, yeah, if it's deeper inside, that might be another issue. Um, but I suppose vaginismus is, it's yeah, very, it's difficult or uncomfortable or painful kind of at entry point and the brick wall, that is like a common feeling. You know, people have these feelings like, is it too small or is there kind of something wrong with me or is it just you know, I'm too tight. That's the sort of things that people might come and say to a doctor, which obviously mm. isn't true because it's very stretchy and it should accommodate everybody. But um, that's the sort of things that people would come and say to their doctor. They'd say, oh, you know, it's really, really painful. Or it feels like I'm too small or it feels like a brick wall. That's kind of the symptoms. It can prevent like the physical act of, for example, inserting a tampon or having penetrative sex. But how does it impact people further than that as well? Because I think that's something that people might not really think about. Well, it can have a huge impact on people because mm. it's something that can start off small and if not worked through, it can go on for years and years and years. And, you know, most of the people we speak to, this isn't something that gets sorted out, so to speak, straight away. Um, I'm kind of relatively, I'm not the youngest, so we, we do speak to teenagers as well. But on the scale of things, we do speak to women in their 60s. So I'm on the younger end of things. And even for me, it took five years-ish to kind of get to a point where I was happier with it. Um, and that was being quite proactive and confident as well and not having any other baggage around the issue, which some people do mm. anyway. You know, like people go years. And obviously, the longer it takes, it has more of a psychological effect. It affects people's whole lives. It affects their relationships. They don't want to get into new relationships. They feel like something's wrong with them. They feel like they're not good enough. They feel like they can't fulfill sort of the normal, you know, duties of a boyfriend or girlfriend that others would. Um, yeah, it can have it can have a huge impact. And mm. also, it's it's the confusion. It's and it's also feeling like. Um, a lot of people feel quite alone with it as well because there's not much research out there. Yeah. They feel like it's a problem that they kind of have to deal with on their own because they're not given much help. Yeah, so I suppose it's quite isolating for a lot of people because it was, as it's so unbelievably personal, I mean, you can't really get any more personal than this issue. It's not mm. something that a lot of people feel comfortable enough to talk about with friends and family. And then if there isn't much information online, and then if you do happen to see a healthcare professional that doesn't know a lot about it, you're sort of out of options so I think it has it has a huge impact on people and also I suppose feeling like it's essentially your fault like it's something kind of in your head that you're just obviously you know overthinking it making something into a big deal there is a sense of I think I felt a sense of responsibility 
um, I felt kind of, this is my little problem that I've kind of got to sort out. I didn't realise that it was a real problem that could have been worked through with a healthcare professional. It kind of almost seemed like a mental block that I had to get over. And it's more than that. Mm. Yeah. So how old were you when you first came across the, the term or the the condition? Um, I was in my early 20s. So I'd, I kind of had this issue for a few years. Um, and then during some research, I came across it because it also, I mean, I, I mentioned in my um, post that there's so many variables that come into this. So that's also why it takes, you know, years for people to kind of accept that they have a problem mm. and then also to do something about it because you can kind of always write it off. You think, OK, well, that maybe that just wasn't a good experience or maybe I wasn't feeling very well that day or maybe I wasn't into it. There's there's so many, um, there's so many factors that go into a good sexual experience that it is difficult to pinpoint exactly what the problem is and I think that's another reason why it's very hard to diagnose because obviously a doctor isn't in the room with you they can't see everything (laughs) that's going on um it's not a fair test so I think that's also what makes it very very difficult and you kind of almost have to yeah for me it took years because I almost had to rule everything out because you think oh maybe I wasn't that attracted to that person or maybe it's just because I was young and I you know just lost my virginity at that point or maybe there's always there's a lot of factors at play and it gets to a point where you think okay you know we've actually been through everything this is actually an issue yeah I think it's so good that that you were saying that you I mean it's a shame of course that some people don't reach out until they're in their 60s like you said but also reassuring to hear that there are teenagers as well that are coming across this information earlier um because I suppose like being a teenager in general I mean it's a critical time in anyone's life and then feeling like something isn't working like it should and then going to a healthcare professional you need to have a lot of confidence yeah first of all just to talk about these things but then also to stand your guard and say like I really do think something is wrong and not just have it dismissed as well yeah yeah but it's tricky to do that isn't it because you don't Mm. want to argue with somebody that knows a lot more about bodies than you do and has years of experience I think that is what's difficult um Mm. when you get told there is nothing wrong with you you kind of feel like a bit of a hypochondriac and you go home that was sort of the experience I had I was um yeah told there was nothing wrong with me and basically I was given numbing cream essentially and kind of told and if this doesn't work then you maybe you need to see a psychologist it was quite heavy-handed and it's Mm. sort of like I'm not crazy (laughs) um so it kind of really you get really really put off I think which you know it's not necessarily anybody's fault but I think because it's such a sensitive issue it needs to be handled quite empathetically because it's it doesn't take a lot for somebody to not walk through that door for a long time you know yeah it can be similar with a lot of women's pain and I spoke to someone as well about endometriosis and if it's dismissed as normal you know part of you might think like okay well that's fine there's nothing wrong but just because there is something that isn't visible doesn't mean that there isn't an issue if it's affecting you if it's come to that point especially where someone is seeking help I really do think that people should you know take it much more seriously and be sensitive in their communication as well because like you said it's not that helpful to be told that you're normal if you feel like something isn't quite right yeah and especially and I mean really the telltale sign is in the examination itself because um clearly I know you know I know some people are funny with examinations and you can find them quite painful in the cold light of day having Mm. speculum I mean a lot of people will have a bit of discomfort but really if somebody is in a lot of pain and really struggling in the stirrups that that should be a sign in itself Mm. because when I went to see somebody about it my examination was unbelievably painful they had to use like a smaller speculum and you know I was only young but I thought you know isn't doesn't this kind of show the context of why I'm here how painful I'm finding this 
No, for sure. And there are health risks that come with it too. If you can't, for example, have a smear test, which is important to monitor, you know, your risks for cervical cancer. I did come across as well on the Vaginismus Network website, there is a page talking about having a smear test as well, which of course is important, but can be quite difficult if you're not comfortable with that and if it's painful. Yeah. It can affect people wanting to have children as well. Um, So I think there's like a high proportion of people in infertility clinics having vaginismus because they're struggling to conceive because of that as well this is a bit of a tangent but I don't know if you've seen unorthodox on Netflix I have yes yeah so (laughs) I was gonna say like there's not that much about painful sex and vaginismus or like those sorts of issues in pop culture and in mainstream stuff in general but there has been a couple of things like in the last year I feel yeah it's kind of in vogue (laughs) this this uh just sort of over the last 18 months I've noticed it kind of popping up it's like somebody's caught wind of it. It's like a kind of a new taboo, which is great. <laughs> so it was in um, it was in Sex Education. Yeah, um, yeah. I can't remember the actress that plays it, but the character was Lily in Sex Education. Yeah. Yeah, I think in series one, I got really excited because it came up and it was really, really good that it came up. But it was interesting because the storyline was that, um, you know, essentially she was feeling a bit stressed out. And he took her for a bike ride and it was all better. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was, I'm not knocking it because it's really, really great that it was brought up, but it was good to see that it came, it came back in series two because yeah, a bike ride wouldn't, wouldn't have solved it. So it was great that it came back and they actually showed dilators on TV. So I thought that was fantastic. Mm. The second situation where it came up as well, it was in the context of two girls. So it showed that it's not just like with the straight sex too, which was good. Well, yeah, I mean, it's nothing to do with men. It's it's basically a penetration problem. That doesn't mm. have to be a penis. It can be anything. It's just um, that group of muscles says no. So I think that's, yeah, important to differentiate with people. It isn't a heterosexual problem. It's not necessarily to do with men. Obviously, they can be a factor in um, somebody's fear or maybe somebody's psychological problems around it, but that isn't for everybody. Mm. In your blog as well, you'd link this article by someone called Lily Lufbro in The Week. Mm. It did mention vaginismus and the gap in research between men and women's um, psychosexual disorders. Yeah. And how female pain is typically just accepted. We're told that it's normal. I'm sure that, you know, many doctors would be like, oh, well, you know, that's to be expected to have a bit of pain. Yeah. And... In terms of painful sex, the majority of women experience it at some point in their life. I'm not sure the exact statistics, but it's way over half. Um, And then there was a recent study of women in the UK. 7.5% reported pain in the last year. And out of those, a quarter reported something called morbid pain, which was defined as having pain very often or always, lasting for more than six months and causing distress and I just thought it was shocking that there was a category called like morbid pain like that just doesn't sound like it should exist (laughs) at all no it doesn't need to be painful but it's just seen as the norm and yeah there's just such a lack of research as well on it which is why there aren't like that many exact figures like you said it's like a very private and sensitive topic as well but yeah there's such a big issue and in general I think with women's pain being dismissed as normal you know, there might be no underlying like physical disease, so to speak, but there could be something like endometriosis going on. But even if there isn't, it shouldn't be yeah. normal to suffer that way, you know? Exactly. This is the thing. Even if, yeah, even if there are no other medical conditions around, you shouldn't be experiencing pain. So I think having a happy sex life is important. 
Um, and I think that's where it does get interesting. So for some women, they actually cannot get pregnant um, because of vaginismus. Other people, it's kind of a sliding scale, I suppose, like anything. Mm. Other women, I suppose, such as myself, when it was worse with me, yeah, I would I would have been able to get pregnant. Somebody essentially, very crudely, would be able to force it and that would happen. But that doesn't mean that that is okay for me. No. So yeah, technically my body would still function as a female in the correct way, but it's... Um, it doesn't mean that I'm going to have a nice ride on the way, which is not good. Mm. Um, and I suppose, um, yeah, I guess like women's sexual pleasure hasn't been really on the agenda up until, you know, fairly recently, so to speak. So there is a, it is one of those things where um, obviously sexism and, you know, it's, it's come a long way, but when you really see it in black and white, these kind of figures, it shows where the gaps are. Mm. Um, because you just can't, it, it is just quite shocking. It's surprising, you know. I think there's been um, like 10, 10 studies or something as opposed to erectile dysfunction, which has had over a thousand. Yeah, um, I saw that as well. So it's, it's, yeah, it's mental, isn't it? When you really just see the figures, you're like, what? <laughs> mm. It's just so under-researched. And it's really interesting because it's like, doesn't somebody want to want to do this? Doesn't somebody want to do this research? Like be be first? And it would benefit everyone. There's nothing really to lose in finding out more about it. Yeah, exactly. So I would love somebody, you know, who's doing a PhD or I'd love more people to kind of get involved and Mm. do work on this topic because I think it's really interesting and it would benefit a lot of people. Yeah, the research that exists, there are some literature reviews, but then in terms of actual trials, I think most of it is weirdly enough based in infertility centres in Iran. When I was looking at it, there's really not that much because the sample sizes won't be that big and so on. It's not really representative and transferable mm. to, to everyone. And the Cochrane Centre, they do a lot of quite high quality research and present evidence and they have a page on vaginismus treatment. Basically, their conclusion was that there wasn't enough good quality research to give good recommendations and so on as well. So that just also mm. really shows <laughs> the gap. Yeah, and it makes it very, it, it does make it tricky. I think that's that's part of the reason that the Vaginismus Network is there because obviously we're not doctors, but we're just kind of, we can just talk about what we know and what's helped us. So it is a, it is literally a network to talk about what you know and what has worked for you mm. um, because there isn't enough conclusive research out there and a lot of people don't know about it. So you've got to start somewhere and that is just by swapping things that have worked for you, things that you've heard, Um hopefully one day there'll be proper research out there and you know the conversation will have moved on so some of this stuff will be redundant hopefully um at at some point but yeah obviously the kind of the pastoral side of it would be nice to always have because it's always nice to have a network of support and have people to talk to but the medical side of it hopefully at one point it'll get to a stage where that is kind of wrapped up and there's um stronger answers out there Mm. that can be told to people comfortably I think that people put a lot of emphasis on medical professionals' knowledge and of course depends on who you're seeing. Mm. Ultimately, I don't know if I want to say patient, but like a patient kind of led network can be very powerful because you've got like the lived experiences and what's actually worked for people and it might not be the same for everyone, but as opposed to maybe going to see one or two doctors or sexual health nurses that might not like know that much, I think it offers support that medicine sometimes can't and also it's good I think for medical professionals to know that organizations like this exist because even if they maybe aren't experts in vaginismus if they have someone that comes and they're like oh this sounds like vaginismus they can maybe 
just having like the resources and being able to tell people about them as well even if you don't mm. have the specific knowledge because obviously you can't have specialist knowledge about everything but I think no, just no, being exactly. aware yeah I mean it's a, it's a time factor as well I mean what I've, I've said before is that this is kind of a, a life story type type condition so it's a sort of thing where people come in and they need to talk because it's the sort of thing they haven't probably really spoken out loud about to any to many people if not anyone and it comes with a big backstory it isn't a quick it's not a quick conversation and unfortunately there isn't time to do that whereas we do have time so we mm. can actually you know have a you know respond to quite lengthy emails people send in we can really hear people out and we have, have the time to do that so that's why it's kind of almost good to kind of sometimes people have a bit of a chat with us and then go go to the doctor because they sort of need to talk it through first and get that mm. out of the way because otherwise it means you know a lot of people kind of probably just turn up at their GP and have a big life story and be talking through sort of their whole sexual history and everything that's happened and all of that is so relevant because that's all makes it what it is but it I suppose it does make it tricky for people because there just isn't time to kind of go through all of this so it is it is kind of getting that sweet spot between um yeah I, I don't know it's, 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 it's a difficult one I can see why it's difficult to diagnose because it is a you know people will come in with a life story because that's what yeah. this is through the vaginismus network have you heard of any experiences that have stuck with you both you know maybe more bad ones that people should listen to and take note and be like okay I'm not going to be like this person or any good experiences as well or do people tend to just end up dealing with it themselves and not really involve healthcare professionals at all um, so it's a real mix, I suppose, in terms of um, so common experience. So yeah, personally, I I was as a teenager given numbing cream, which I just thought was so ridiculous even at the time. I still yeah. find it a bit a bit shocking. <laughs> um, but there's um, you know on the I think a lot of people have been people have mentioned that they've been just sent away to have a glass of wine and loosen up, or um, <sighs> you know just to kind of chill out loosen up don't worry about it kind of thing so I think there's been a lot of um, people kind of being dismissed in that way that just emphasizes that it's the vaginal penetration that has to be the kind of the center of it as well yeah it, it's just it's, it's funny it's quite funny really mm-hmm. um we had well on the more shocking end of things we did have um somebody and her her testimonial is of it is on on our blog she actually I won't go into too much detail about this and um, but she did actually have surgery um mm. so I think she had the area um widened is the wrong word because you know it shouldn't really need to it shouldn't it just doesn't need to be widened but she did yeah. she did have surgery which was you know quite sad to hear about because that mm. is never a direction anybody should be told to go in and, and just not necessary no um but I suppose in terms of good experiences more and more people are coming to us and have actually had a diagnosis and that's a positive thing because um, just going to see somebody that knows what it is and tells you, I mean, that's a great thing. And we are getting more and more people that do come to us and have been diagnosed. Um, and some people, I spoke to a, a girl in Australia recently, and she was asking me whether um, kind of like a physiotherapist and whether that is like a big thing here. And my mm. honest answer was, I personally don't know. I mean, I'm sure um, I've heard of um, friends that, I've got a friend who's... Um, training to be an osteopath and he seemed to know quite a lot about this and said that mm. there's courses available to him that um kind of um yeah you can basically kind of go inside and um 
um, look at muscles in you know vaginally and I thought that that sounds really interesting but I don't personally know much about that so I think maybe that side of things is is becoming more of a trend or something that's a bit more on the agenda mm-hmm. and um I think yeah there's there's somebody that saw I, I spoke to recently that had kind of had had good results so I think yeah pe- people are having good experiences as well but there is a lot of um it's kind of a mix. It's kind of a bit of a gamble, basically, whether somebody mm. you go to see will know what it is at all or not. It shouldn't be like that. It should be that whoever you go to see can kind of point you in the right direction or support you or refer you onwards to someone who can. Yeah, exactly. Even if you're not an expert, I think no one's an expert in everything. And this is something that can sort of cross over into psychiatry. So I get that it's a tricky little spot. But I think for me what I don't think is an unfair request is to just have it on the table to talk about Mm. um what I was so surprised looking back is that you know there was obviously an issue here I was experiencing pain with the examination I was obviously my muscles were tightening and it just um surprised me that just nobody spoke to me about pelvic floor exercises which correct me if I'm wrong but I would assume that's quite a basic you know piece of knowledge like a pelvic floor exercise Mm um and yeah, nobody spoke to me. Just they, nobody, no one sort of even said used the kind of language like, "Oh, you know, your your muscles are contracting," or "Your um, this is what's happening here." It's basically that um, your muscles are contracting, um, and that's why you're causing pain. There was just no sort of explanation, even in quite simple terms or things that are surely very very common practice for all doctors and nurses. You know, contractions, pelvic floor exercises, these kind of things. I would assume are quite basic and that's why I was just surprised that none of that was brought up. I assume it can be devastating to get a diagnosis. In some ways it might be reassuring to know that there is a name for what you've been experiencing but then the next thought must be you know but like now what like what do I do about it? There are quite a lot of different options like you said retraining of like the vaginal muscles with like pelvic floor muscles where you can kind of learn to voluntarily control them yeah, I think that physiotherapists can also be involved in like biofeedback and stuff where I think you kind of put electrical probes. I'm obviously no expert here as well, but I've come across that when I was reading. Um, depending on the cause, psychological therapy might be quite useful if there's trauma involved yeah. as well. And then there's dilation. We progressively insert mm. larger kind of looks like plastic tampons. Go watch Sex Education <laughs> on Netflix to see what they look like. <laughs> yeah, Although there isn't that much kind of no research to say like this is the gold standard this is the best that we should be offering people what most tend to recommend is psychological therapy depending on your needs paired with the dilators and kind of self-help and working through is that what you have found being like the most common thing yeah so I think starting off with therapy I think is a good place for a lot of people um, I can't personally vouch for that and say I've had therapy because I actually haven't on on this issue. I kind of was considering it, but I thought I don't have baggage around this issue. That's my choice. And maybe at some point I'll get to a point. I think I do want to dig into it, but I didn't actually have therapy. But a lot of people have. And that's a good place to start because, as you know, with a lot of people, there's a lot to unpick. And it really is important that that is where you start. Um, and then after that, dilation is probably... Well, I, I don't have the figures on this, but it's a, it's a very popular way to kind of start improving this. For me personally, I had I saw a huge improvement and had great success using um, a mixture of dilation and pelvic floor training. Mm-hmm. So I did a few months. I think it was three or four months of pelvic floor exercises. I would build up each day, just like a normal 
routine at the gym or whatever <laughs> basically do reps <laughs> of uh, different pelvic floor exercises and then after I was comfortable doing that and kind of almost like was learning to control these spasms myself I then moved on to dilation and gradually worked up and for me I had a huge improvement doing that and I just remember thinking really this is what this took doing some pelvic floor exercises which surely <laughs> every healthcare professional in the country um, is well versed in and I just think that that's something so simple that could have been talked about when I was 19 but it wasn't and I had sort of years of thinking there's something wrong it just you know it's not anybody's fault but it just seems like you know for a lot of people yeah there's a lot to unpick and it's not as simple as that but for some people it can be as easy as doing some quite simple exercises and dilation and even though nothing's a quick fix it won't happen overnight it's something that can be worked towards and gradually improved over time. It doesn't have to be this big dark cloud that hangs over people for, you know, five, ten years. It can be something that's talked through, quite frankly, with language people understand, so they know what's actually happening to their body, and improved from the get-go. It, it doesn't need to take years and years. I think that's what's key here, because people waste a lot of... It, it takes away years, you know? Like, yeah. there's women now that are like, God, I missed out on my whole 20s because of this. It's kind of just sad, that lost time when it could have been worked through a long time ago. Mm. Do you know if this is something that people would typically come across themselves? Or have you come across people that have been referred to any specialist services or have had the treatment paid for by the NHS? I mean, it definitely should be something that is available in the NHS. And I'm not sure if it is. But do, do you know anything about that? Well, I, I haven't massively spoken to people about that side of things. Um, sometimes people do ask us about what's available and we're always a little bit vague because we you know we're not you know up, up to date with the prices of everything and what what's happening and yeah. it is um I suppose really the two main things here are the psychological treatment so kind of the therapy I think that just depends on everybody doesn't it what you know what kind of waiting lists around at the moment mm -hmm. I don't actually know that'd be interesting to find out whether this is considered something that qualifies for that I'm not sure um yeah, that'd be a really interesting point to look into, actually. I don't know. Um, and then the other part of it is basically a set of dilators. So I'm not sure whether you can get those on the NHS, but obviously those are quite easily purchasable online. But then, yeah, there is that question of should everybody have to pay for it? Should some people be able to get that free if they can't afford it? Mm. Um, pricing is sometimes a bit of a tricky question because also we there's a shop in London that we they've done events for us and we're quite good friends with them and they actually made a set of dilators especially for vaginismus um, they actually crafted them themselves and they're basically made out of a kind of a bendier softer material they're thinner they're kind of tapered at the end they're basically for people that have vaginismus um, so we quite often recommend that to people but then I do have to have a bit of a caveat and I do have to be honest with people and say well yeah they are they are quite pricey though so um, mm. also you know there are the more standard clinical ones, which are a little bit cheaper that you can also get online, or maybe you can get them through the NHS, but I don't really know because I kind of, yeah, did self-help myself. So I think that's something we probably need to maybe look into and, and get some more solid answers for people on that. Yeah, there is an NHS page on vaginismus, you know, how they have pages for different conditions. And it's like one of the shortest pages I've come across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it brief. is quite concise. I suppose it does summarise what is known. And they kind of say that, like, you should go to a specialist. Let me find it. It says that treatment is initially done under guidance of specialized therapists. Then you'll be expected to practice some of it at home. If you're in a relationship, you can involve your partner. Treatment mm. is usually effective. You may see progress in a matter of weeks. 
it's not clear really is it whether it's available on the NHS or not for people that might need support financially and so on Mm. I suppose as there is more conversation it's more recognized and less taboo then that would be something that is more on the agenda at least the vaginismus network are doing great work sharing information and talking about these things yeah we we share what um other medical professionals have have published and said and anything that isn't technically fact we we was kind of caveat as just our own experience so i think that's all you can do that's the best you can do Mm. um yeah it'd be cool to get to a point where we have more stuff available on our website like more studies and things that have been published if people do can and you know do want to to read those so it'd be good to kind of start sharing what information is there but at the moment we can um, mainly talk from our own experience yeah and I would really recommend following is it at the Vag Network on Instagram yeah I think it's important to be aware of just in terms of solidarity and also for future healthcare professionals yeah and um, it's just stuff that should be normal and part of normal discourse and not just something that is only spoken about if you're desperate it should just be part of the conversation yeah exactly and when you get chatting loads of people you know because there hasn't been much conclusive sort of research into it Mm -hmm. we don't know exactly how many people do but it it should just be a normal part of conversation and and also we should just show it's not just one type of person that gets this it's kind of everybody you know Mm. like when I was researching at the time as a teenager really all I could find online was um yeah kind of a short paragraph um which was kind of the real sort of brief medical kind of does what it says on the tin kind of description the facts but other than that there wasn't much kind of factual information out there so you kind of go onto forums and you know you find the odd testimonial but it was I remember just thinking it's all just American women that are getting married like that that was sort of that was what I could find online I was like I'm not I'm not getting married I don't want to talk about consummation that's that for me was something I found really irritating it's like I would just want to hear from someone in their 20s that wants to go on dates I don't don't want to hear about somebody getting married that that was all that seemed to be available so I think it's good that we kind of hear from everybody we do get emails from people and they say I'd really like it if you can match me up with somebody that has comes from the same kind of cultural background as me because they I want them to understand the kind of issues that I'm having to go mm. through and how can, I can talk about it with my community which is a little bit different to maybe you so we need to hear from everybody basically because there's there's all different nuances and it's kind of everyone's got their own kind of personal agendas about why they want to improve this and the different challenges they have absolutely This podcast is called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School. <laughs> Great name. Thank you. So I like to kind of end on some sort of inspiring Ooh. message. <laughs> Something that you wish was more the focus in medical education um, and something you wish that all doctors knew that you don't really think seems to be the case. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I think maybe... Because I think a lot of medical professionals have heard of vaginismus. So what I would maybe say, because I understand it must be an absolute nightmare to diagnose because of what, what we said before. There's so many factors. It's, you know, it's it, very difficult for someone to comfortably say, yeah, you definitely have this when they don't know the full story. Mm. But I think what I would really like to see is just it being put on the table so people can then go off and do their own research. So if you don't know, just bring it up anyway. Just put it out there so people can go off and do their own research use the kind of language talk about muscles contracting I suppose it'd be nice to give people a more frank explanation of what could be happening to them yeah even if you can't diagnose even just put it on the table as something that it could be that's what I would say so maybe that's not the short and snappy answer but I think that would really really help no that's great thank you
you were saying that this podcast is interesting because there's some more medically like minded people listening so is there anything that you feel should have been mentioned that wasn't oh um it put me on the spot there <laughs> i um it's totally fine if not as well well as i did mention before i'm a big advocate for pelvic floor exercises um, mm-hmm. and i think that's interesting that we talk about that in the context of young women it isn't just women that have had a baby or people that are older or people that um, are trying to hold their urine in because I think that's what we think about Kegels and pelvic floor exercises. Yeah, I'd like to see more talk of that with younger women and it just being discussed as, as another exercise and a way to sort of help spasms. And yeah, talking about it with the younger women, that's what I would also like to see. But that's just me personally. I'm a big advocate for pelvic floor exercises. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Like we mostly would talk about pelvic floor exercises as something to deal with stress incontinence and like after childbirth yeah okay well great thank you so much Natalie for taking the time thanks so much for having me and good luck thank you and that's our episode for today I hope you learned something new there's lots more info and reading in the show notes which you can find on lindadoes.com forward slash whitlands18 for this episode You might also want to check out episode 9 where I interviewed Anita Jones about her experiences of endometriosis and pain bias and intersections with racism and sexism. Remember to follow me at Willims on Instagram and Twitter in order to stay up to date and give me feedback. If you liked the episode or even if you didn't, I would love to hear from you. Please also share this podcast around. I massively appreciate when you do. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day and hope you tune in for next week's episode too. Bye!